Welcome to Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers, where we talk with and about the foreign banking community in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us, and please be sure to subscribe so you never miss a beat with the IIB. All right, everyone, welcome to Bank Talk. Today, we are going to be talking a little bit about OFAC's recent sanctions compliance guidance for the virtual currency industry, uh, which it published in October. And the IIB loves to keep its members on the cutting edge. So they've assembled a panel of true experts on the industry. But before these experts introduce themselves, I'm going to give a brief introduction so you all know who I am. My name is Jeffrey Alberts. And I work at a law firm, Prior Cashman, representing financial institutions and also representing some companies in the virtual currency space with respect to regulatory and enforcement issues. And I'd like to turn it over now to uh, Rebecca Reddick to introduce herself. Hi, my name is Rebecca Reddick. I am the general counsel of the Ave Companies, which are a group of software development companies based in Europe that develop open source blockchain-based software. Um, prior to joining the Ave companies, I, like Jeff, was in private practice as a partner at law firms in the U.S. and the financial services group, but primarily was advising blockchain, crypto, and DeFi companies on uh, legal and regulatory matters relating to being in this space, and I'm very happy to be here, so thanks so much for having me. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is um, Jason Alagrante. I'm the Chief Legal and Compliance Officer at Fireblocks. Uh, Fireblocks builds um, and deploys digital asset infrastructure for financial institutions, among others. Our software service helps um, institutions, in, in, including financial institutions and banks, um, securely hold and administer digital assets, either on their own behalf or for their customers. Um, my background, like Rebecca's, is, is in traditional uh, financial services regulation. Um, I've practiced in both government um, and in private practice. Um, so um, that background has actually served me really well in digital assets, and I'm happy to, um, to be here today with the, the moderator and the panelists. Um, and my name is Jay Ramaswamy. Um, I'm currently the, the Chief Regulatory Officer at Andreessen Horowitz, uh, which is a, um, a venture capital fund, um, and I'm the Chief Regulatory Officer for the crypto fund specifically. Um, I have um, experience in, in the crypto industry like, like others on uh, um, the podcast here. I came from um, uh, a layer one protocol known as Celo, um, which was building a um, mobile first blockchain. Um, and I was the chief risk and compliance officer there. Um, and prior to that, I've had experience both in, in financial services and in the government. Um, I was I served as the head of enterprise risk management at Capital One Bank, um, the global head of AML at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. And before that, um, uh, spent about a decade in the US Justice Department and uh, was the head of the uh, money laundering section um, before I left, uh, which was responsible for Patriot Act and sanctions and um, Bank Secrecy Act violations against uh, uh, institutions uh, in the United States. Uh, so that's my background. and. Um, with that, uh, Jeff, if you're okay with it, I thought a good way to um, to start this off would be maybe just to describe for um, uh, those listening on the podcast what exactly OFAC is and what OFAC sanctions are. That'd be great, Jay. Okay, great. Um, and so uh, I, I tend, I'm a bit of a history buff, so I, it sometimes is helpful for people to know 
what exactly um, OFAC is and, and where it came from. Um, and, and it gives you a sense of, of what its mission is and why the regulations it promulgates are um, so pertinent to, to what happens in the, in, the, um, in the crypto space or the digital asset space. Um, uh, so OFAC is the Office of Foreign Assets Control and it's a office within the United States Treasury Department. And it actually has a pretty interesting history that, that um, in some senses goes all the way back to the founding. Um, so I don't think many people know that the Treasury Department actually first issued sanctions. I think it was in the War of 1812 um, against uh, uh, European powers that were impressing uh, US, um, uh, the US Navy or, or, or um, uh, merchant uh, marine at the time. And uh, it, it subsequently um, issued sanctions and a number of other um, circumstances, including the Civil War. But the immediate predecessor for the for OFAC was um, uh, uh, another entity, and I can't remember the name. I think it was the the Office of Foreign um, uh, Economic Assets or something like that. Um, but it was in the Second World War. It was it was responsible for essentially trying to prevent um, uh, uh, property that was expropriated by the Nazis um, uh, and used for wartime, um, you know, funding of of, of the war effort. Um, the modern OFAC really dates from the Korean War, um, when the U.S. imposed sanctions on North Korea and China in, in response to uh, activities that were taking place in Korea at the time um, under um, U.N. Uh, auspices. Um, but that's kind of the, the history. In, in a nutshell, what OFAC sanctions are, for, for those listening, is really um, a foreign policy tool that the U.S. uses um, against um, uh, uh, regimes, um, but also sometimes um, just governments um, uh, 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 against countries, against individuals and companies um, that are, in a sense, um, either involved in in uh, destabilizing international relations um, or um, violate some other foreign policy um, a directive of the U.S. government. Um, they may also involve terrorists. Um, uh, entities or entities involved in, in organized crime and narcotics trafficking, but it's a broad tool suite that the Treasury Department has to essentially block and prevent um, uh, uh, assets uh, from being uh, conveyed through the U.S. financial system uh, that could be potentially used in these kinds of activities that could compromise U.S. foreign policy interests. Um, and the the reach of, of sanctions is important to understand is is very broad. Um, they typically implicate dollar based transactions um, from a transactional perspective, um, but more importantly, they actually implicate all U.S. persons. And so, the the jurisdictional reach sometimes is is misunderstood as only applying to sort of companies in the U.S. But if you're a U.S. person and you're working for a foreign bank, for example you actually have OFAC obligations um, and could be violent of those obligations um, if you don't abide by, uh, by this uh, restrictions. Um, a couple of other things just to note about sanctions. There are, I think, four broad-based types of sanctions. One are um, country and jurisdictional sanctions, which are all-encompassing. You can't do business with these countries or jurisdictions. And there are only five of those programs currently in, um, in existence. Um, one is against Cuba, uh, which dates back to the 60s. Um, then there are North Korean sanctions. Uh, there are Iranian sanctions. Um, there are also sanctions um, uh, relating to Syria. And then finally, against uh, the Crimea 
um, region. Um, and that's a weird sanction because it's not a country sanction, it's a regional sanction, which dates back to um, uh, Russians' actions in the, uh, in the Crimea several years ago. Um, but those are the, the broad-based jurisdictional sanctions where no financial sanction activity can take place with those jurisdictions. Then there are targeted sanctions of various types. One are um, government-targeted sanctions. So, um, for example, um, uh, the Venezuelan government is, is the subject of certain um, sanctions in, in the U.S. Um, there are also um, sectoral-based sanctions. And so after Russia invaded um, uh, Ukraine and, and Crimea at the time, um, uh, some sectoral sanctions were imposed on, on sectors of the Russian economy, and they're more targeted. And then there's finally list-based sanctions, which are sanctions against specific individuals or specific companies um, that, uh, that, that have to be abided by. And in the virtual asset space, a novel um, thing has been created where they are now, uh, OFAC is now listing wallet addresses that are associated with sanctioned entities, individuals, jurisdictions, et cetera. Um, and so that's kind of the gamut of, of, of what's, um, what's effectively covered in, in the sanctions regime. Thanks, Jay. Um, and I guess, and I guess one, one last thing, just so people understand, the penalties are important to understand because um, uh, sanctions in, in general um, have a regi our regime of what, what are called strict liability. It doesn't matter if you intended to violate sanctions or not. If you, in fact, don't um, uh, uh, implement a sanctions program um, and, and sanctioned transactions get through your institution, you are, in fact, liable for them. And there's a very discrete schedule that talks about how much you have to pay, et cetera, if there are um, uh, different uh, uh, you know, violations based on the number of violations. But it's strict liability, meaning intention doesn't matter. If you violate it, you're on the hook for violating these sanctions. And there can be criminal penalties as well um, in certain instances. Um, so that's the broad-based sense of, of what these um, regimes do. Actually, you know, well, now that you've terrified everyone uh, by talking about the strict liability standard that applies, I'm going to just give a very quick overview of uh, the nature of the entities to which these sanctions apply. And I don't, I'm not going to go into that much detail because most of our audience are IIB member banks and they do apply to you. <laughs> so uh, that's the simple answer. Uh, as Jay pointed out, it really applies to all U.S. persons, and in a variety of circumstances, it also can apply to other entities that are located outside the United States, such as entities that are owned and controlled by a U.S. person, and in some instances, non-U.S. persons that actually provide support for persons that are designated or blocked uh, to engage in transactions. But because IIB members are, are generally familiar with the fact that the sanctions regime applies to them, I'm going to just very briefly talk about the nature of uh, the OFAC sanctions that can apply to a bank. Uh, because increasingly, traditional financial institutions are getting involved in cryptocurrency business and cryptocurrency transactions. So it's important to know, uh, as Jay pointed out, that there are, have been some instances in which wallet addresses have been specifically identified. So if you're going to be receiving cryptocurrency directly, you should definitely uh, make sure that your systems are able to handle those type of uh, monitoring, those types of transactions. And you should also just generally be aware of the nature of your customers. So you probably have considered uh, doing business with various forms of fintech companies, including cryptocurrency companies. 
And it's important that you understand the roles that these different types of companies play in the overall cryptocurrency ecosystem. And if you don't have a background in this area, it can be pretty confusing, but we have with us a true expert. So Rebecca, uh, if you could give our audience an overview of the categories of entities in the crypto ecosystem that are potentially implicated by OFAX sanctions, that would be great. Sure. Um, so with uh, your definition in mind and that there needs to be a central actor, I think we have to think about that. Um, but there are lots of different actors in the crypto space who all should be thinking about how um, OFAC sanctions uh, may apply to them. So there are these centralized actors such as um, centralized exchanges like Coinbase or Gemini, um, ones you've heard about who um, you know, run akin to traditional financial institutions and in that there's a central intermediary who takes in information and to um, make sure that they're overseeing how everything runs. Those, pro they probably have the same level of OFAC sanctions as we're used to seeing with some of the IIB members or something like that. But that doesn't end there because they're also, so that's what people call CFI or centralized finance, but referring to crypto. Um, so it'll be, whether it be um, exchanges or centralized crypto lenders or other centralized actors in the crypto space, potentially even stablecoin issuers if they are taking in or both issuing and then um, sending out their uh, stablecoins to other people. So anyone who's really conducting centralized KYC, which is know your customer, really should think about how sanctions apply to them. There's another whole sector in the crypto space, which we refer to as DeFi or decentralized finance. Um, DeFi refers to sort of an open permissionless uh, system uh, of financial applications that have been built on permissionless blockchains like Ethereum. Uh, and DeFi itself really refers to the, to the technology, but there are software providers who've built this technology and there are a number of ways to think about decentralization, right? The tech itself is decentralized because it's built on Ethereum. But if there is a way to control who comes into and out of a particular um, DeFi application that you have built and you're the one controlling it, you have to think or a company has to really consider whether they have enough hallmarks of CeFi or of a centralized actor to um, consider whether they need to make sure they're taking actions to comply as much as they can with OFAC sanctions. There's another piece of OFAC, which everybody sort of like alluded to, but actually is pretty important, which is not just, are you a US person who is trying to engage in financial transactions, but are you facilitating financial transactions by US people, which could lead to um, violations of you know, OFAC rules and regs. And so there are different pieces of technology that could facilitate such types of transactions by US persons. So if you don't, if you've not blocked all of the US off of your user interface, there's no way to block US people off of the blockchain. So you have to put that to the side. But if you are hosting a user interface that is not blocking US persons, um, then you have to think about whether you need to comply with OFAC sanctions. Uh, or, you know, make sure you're taking steps to comply. One of the ways that the recent OFAC guidance has talked about that, I'm sort of, I know I'm veering off just a little bit as to who's an actor in the DeFi space, but um, I've given this a lot of thought, but 
you know, one of the ways to think about it is there are a number of different analytics companies in the crypto space that have built themselves up and have put in things like wallet monitoring um, and or IP monitoring or things like that, that you need to start thinking about. So different um, technological features that you can implement on technology to comply with OFAC sanctions. But that's very, very different from conducting like regular KYC and saying, oh, that person's from Iran, we're not going to transact with them. I mean, there are a number of other actors in the def in the crypto space too, right? Wallet providers. I mean, tons of people who do infrastructure work. I, I mean, the whole list of people goes on and on. But the ultimate question is, are you interacting um, with U.S. persons? One or two, are you facilitating a way for U.S. persons to engage in financial transactions that may lead them down into having to think about OPEC sanctions? Great. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, with that background on kind of who the crypto players are, I think it would be helpful to just get a sense of what it is that OFAC is focused on, because OFAC's guidance identifies some central issues that they've seen, and then we can get into discussing what some practical implementation issues are around responding to those, uh, those specific shortcomings that OFAC has identified. Um, Jay, could you give us a sense of what issues OFAC is focused on in the guidance? Sure, and and I think it's important to to realize that you know OFAC recently released actual guidance in the form of a document that that goes through uh, what what Jeff was just um, alluding to a moment ago. But that guidance is also based on a series of enforcement actions that have taken place, I think, over the past several years. And so it's important for 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 those in the banking side to realize that just as OFAC has brought actions against uh, traditional financial institutions, um, it has also been active in bringing those same actions against, as Rebecca was describing, um, centralized uh, 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 cryptocurrency digital asset exchanges that have um, OFAC obligations. Um, and the things that they've, they've identified, both I would say in those um, enforcement actions, as well as now kind of condensed into into uh, guidance um, are, are four major things. Um, and, and these are consistent with the kinds of controls that, that a bank um, uh, would have in place uh, for purposes of, of sanctions monitoring and sanctions compliance. Um, the first is that it's important for um, obliged entities uh, to have implementing procedures um, as they begin operations. And so, you know, one of the things that OFAC typically looks to as to whether you are, depending on, on, on the type of enforcement action or, or penalty that you may receive is, did you have procedures before you found out that you might have sanctions violations, right? So did you have credible procedures in place? And, and it'll be the same types of things that, that folks in the banking industry are familiar with, right? You need policies, you need internal controls, you need risk assessments, you need, um, uh, uh, monitoring, you need um, uh, auditing and testing. All of those similar things apply to um, entities that have these obligations in the digital asset space as well. And so having those set up and implemented before um, you begin operation or as you're beginning operations is, is important and, and in a sense is indicative of good faith. If even though there's a strict liability requirement, um, I think even OFAC, it was about two years ago, came out with guidance that that suggested that if you had 
um, existing programs in place and they gave kind of a sense of what those compliance requirements would be, um, you'd be treated in a different way than if you didn't have anything in place and you violated sanctions. And so this notion of having things up front, I think is very important and is consistent with the way OFAC has approached things over the years with all sorts of financial institutions. Another thing that's somewhat unique to the, to the crypto space and, and the digital asset space, as, as Rebecca mentioned, is the ability to, to geofence or, or, or block um, IP addresses. Because this is an internet native technology and a digital native technology, you can use some of the tools that exist on the internet to help um, mitigate this. And, and, and it's not perfect in the sense that there are abilities to circumvent geofencing and, and the like. Um, but they are, again, sh um, they show good faith efforts to do what you can in this space. Um, and, um, and it's another indication that, that you're trying to put in place an, uh, a credible and effective um, policy against sanctions and, and programming against sanctions. Another one is just inadequate KYC. And I think that um, everybody in, on this call will be familiar with that, what that is. And, and that doesn't change when you're a uh, digital asset exchange, you have the same responsibilities to identify individuals and, and companies that are sanctioned parties and entities, and to sort of do the due diligence necessary to, to get that information um, upfront. What I've just described are in a sense the upfront controls, but there's an important after the fact control that all of you again are familiar with, which is basic transaction monitoring, which is even assuming that you your, your upfront controls can't catch sanctions violations, you should have transaction monitoring in place to make sure that um, uh, that you can catch them on the back end. And one thing, as Rebecca mentioned, that's that is somewhat unique to the blockchain space, and that that many of the, those on the call may not recognize, is that because blockchains are open, transparent, and public, these are public ledgers that everybody can see. There are companies, um, as Rebecca also mentioned, um, like uh, Chainalysis, and there are others, uh, TRM and Elliptic, um, that can effectively analyze blockchain transactions and look for um, the types of, of entities and others that, that, that might be indicative of um, sanctions violations. And they have tools and heuristics to allow that to be done. So transaction monitoring can be done on the blockchain in with different technology, but very similar to what's done um, in, in, in the, the traditional finance space, with one exception, which I think is important, which is because the blockchain is public, um, you can do transaction monitoring on um, relationships that your particular customer in, of a digital asset custodian or provider might have with others outside. And so you see the entire transaction history, regardless of whether the third parties are, um, are actually uh, uh, customers of yours. And so you get a much fuller picture, if you will, of the nature of the activity. And it, it opens up some interesting possibilities in terms of sanctions compliance. But, um, but with that, I'm going to turn that, this over, I think, to, uh, to Jason to discuss a little bit about, uh, about how you implement some of these things. Um, so, uh, Jason? Yeah, thanks. I, I, I appreciate it. Um, uh, I can really speak to the experience we've had at Fireblocks in terms of um, how we think about and, and approach a sanctions program and um, talk to it both from our perspective, but also from uh, the perspective of what we, we've been able to do to uh, for some of our customers in this, in this space, um, really leveraging the blockchain technology and the platform to um, uh, create environments where um, sanctions can be um, appropriately accounted for and considered. So at Fireblocks, we've done some things that I think most sensible organizations should do. And I think 
um, most um, uh, folks in the audience will be familiar with, right? So we've done everything from adopting um, a compliance program to appointing a CCO, making sure there's a really strong message coming from the C-suite, um, uh, you know, initiating um, company-wide training um, for all of our customer-facing staff and um, uh, introducing an audit program. Um, other of the controls we implemented obviously have a lot more to do with the OFAC guidance and the specific characteristics of the asset class. Um, in our experience, some of these things have been pretty easy to implement and quite intuitive, um, whereas some have been a bit more difficult and challenging. Uh, one of the easier ones, right, is, is OFAC has um, now promulgated uh, wallet addresses that should be placed on the SDN list. And so it's been relatively straightforward to make sure we are plugged into that and updating it on our platform so that um, uh, you know, we and our customers are prohibited from um, transacting with those addresses. Um, a bit more challenging actually was the geolocation piece. Um, this first emanated from an enforcement action and was on our radar even before um, the most recently issued guidance. Um, it's seen that the straightforward approach to this was going to uh, be to say that anyone accessing a platform with a VPN um, should be banned or rejected. As someone who's ever only used a VPN uh, or geolocation masking to, um, you know, try to access my my Netflix account from a from a foreign airport, um, I hadn't realized that there could be legitimate uses for this technology. Um, and when it came out in discussion with the management team that, in fact, this was a commonly used technology and it wasn't so easy as just saying, you know, we're going to outright ban these, we realized that we had to take a more um, thoughtful approach um, that, you know, ended up looking a lot more like um, a deep dive KYC on the particular customers who were using this, the reasons why, and, um, you know, having um, uh, establishing the cadence of checkpoints to, to really uh, make sure we understood why this was happening. Um, the other piece that I think is, is interesting and, and echoes a lot of what's been said already is these um, companies and service providers that are now leveraging the blockchain technology to provide um, basically provenance checking services on assets. Um, on the Firebox platform, we uh, partner with um, Elliptic and Chainalysis both, um, both for our own usage as, as well as um, the, the use of our customers if they want to. Um, and it's um, they're, they're really cool tools. Uh, really cool tools. I would encourage everyone to check them out on our platform. They um, basically check transactions um, in real time as they are updated and processed on the blockchain um, for any red flags or alarms. Um, I think I would just kind of tie all that together with a few statements about how we're now able on um, the Firebox platform, at least to extend the benefit of some of um, these learnings to our own customers. So um, Rebecca spoke a little bit about um, DeFi and, uh, and uh, permissionless environments, but what we're now able to do using all the controls that I just mentioned um, is create for the first time permissioned environments, which are um, basically uh, uh, environments where customers can come together and uh, transact with like-minded customers, all of whom have been screened in advance of participating in that environment. Um, so it's permission in the sense that there is an intermediary, um, in this case, Fireblocks, taking all the tools and controls that we just mentioned and um, applying them both to the participants and the environment. Uh, we're actually working with um, Ave for one of the first of these permission environments. So maybe we'll um, take the benefit of having Rebecca on and ask for a few words. Yeah, thanks. That was a very nice segue, Jason. Um, so as Jason mentioned, um, there's something new called Ave Arc. Um, the company had received a lot of inbounds from traditional financial institutions saying, how can we use DeFi? We really want to get into these DeFi you know, protocols and start transacting. 
but obviously we have internal OPEC, KYC, you know, BSA, the Bank Secrecy Act, compliance requirements. And so we don't feel comfortable um, in the permissionless environment. As a lawyer, I could probably come up with a number of different reasons why they should, but it wasn't worth it because so many people felt that they needed to be in a permissioned environment. And so as a software developer, we took the original Aave V2 smart contracts and built another layer of smart contracts on top, um, which allows for the whitelisting or permit listing of wallets. Um, Fireblocks and Jason can speak more to their role, but Fireblocks acts, acts as the KYC provider um, and sort of the gatekeeper on the permit list of who can be in the Aave Arc permissioned market. And the, so we're the software provider. There are a number of white, different whitelisters who will, you know, can come into existence. Fireblocks, I think, has the most interesting story because they were the first um, and they went through the entire governance process too because Ave Governance, which is a group of well over 100,000 unique wallet addresses that vote on proposals relating to the Ave protocol, voted to have Fireblocks be the first whitelister and to deploy the Ave Arc uh, market. And so Governance is the third actor that I think about other than the users in the permissioned ecosystem because trying to stay consistent to this concept of decentralization, having governance be involved in terms of how the ecosystem around a permission market grows and develops and changes is really interesting and I think very special as well. So um, I think this is definitely a new way to think about how we move into the financial future. And if Jason sort of wants to chime in in terms of how Fireblocks is thinking about it too, because um, I think it's something that's definitely gonna be uh, a, the same similar system when there are these building blocks of, of different DeFi protocols that can work together, but within this permissioned environment. Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. I, I mean, honestly, I, I just hope it's, um, you know, this sort of thing is the beginning. And one of the things that's really struck me about the process, um, I, I, I know you just mentioned um, AVR governance. Um, it, you know, we, we really are potentially in a, in a position to build um, in many respects, if we wanted to, um, an even um, a better and more tightly managed and more tightly monitored um, environment for uh, customers to participate in this asset class in, and and it's 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 really exciting to um, to 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 think about what that might look like uh, down the road. So we're really excited to be a part of it. Well, thank you so much for uh, for getting into that explanation. Um, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but I actually have a question. So I know that frequently when people engage in transactions on a DeFi protocol, they're often either seeking a loan or seeking to exchange a cryptocurrency asset they have for somebody else's cryptocurrency asset. And people that are thinking about how OFAC works and, and who's on that list is always worried, how do I know if I'm engaging in a transaction on a DeFi platform that I'm not interacting with, you know, Osama bin Laden, or you know, somebody who's clearly listed on the SDN list. Um, is that the type of thing that this permissioned environment would prevent from happening? And if so, how how does that work? Yeah. So um, I have so many responses to the first part of your question, which is like, you know, are you interacting with people on the SDN list and permissionless DeFi? But we'll put that to the side for now, um, but uh, in this, yes, it, it should prevent it because Fireblocks is doing KYC at a level 
that would detect all of these types of things and then only put uh, individuals, entities, or wallet addresses that have been permit listed into the um, permissioned environment. And the permissioned environment doesn't interact with the permissionless environment. They're just two separate deployments of the smart contract. Ave Arc having this extra set on top for whitelisting and it's, it's a closed environment. Really cool. And so when, when there's that type of transaction, whether it's an exchange or a loan, both you know, the, the party who is coming in uh, through the front end that you've built and the counterparty, both are whitelisted before the transaction occurs. Is that right? Yeah, so a few things. One, we don't host a user interface. So that's a whole separate part. Two, I would say loans and swaps don't exist in DeFi the way you're thinking about it in the traditional financial system. I say almost all transactions are peer to protocol or peer to contract and not peer to peer because you're interacting with a pool of fungible assets. So if all of us were in a pool and I wanted to borrow against collateral I'd put in, I wouldn't know if it was Jay's or yours or Jason's or anybody else's too. So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about OFAC sanctions, but um, understanding it's not, I mean, at least in a permissioned environment, you just never have a question, right? You just you just don't have to ask yourself that question. Uh, well, thank you for that clarification. Um, and I, I, I love, I'm sure regulators love seeing uh, their regulations drive innovation. And this seems like a really cool <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I, it's it's good that people that have that concern now have that uh, that opportunity to engage in in DeFi transactions. Um, so I was just going to conclude with a couple things. One, uh, just very generally, I, I want to talk about some of the consequences of non-compliance. As Jay pointed out, uh, you can be subject to consequences of non-compliance on a strict liability basis. So even if you didn't know that you were inadvertently violating a, uh, uh, a sanction, you still can be penalized. Of course, the likely penalties are going to be lower if you make a good faith effort to prevent that from occurring. Um, but as many of the IIB members know, even you know, with the best possible uh, sanctions regime in place within a financial institution and uh, with very dedicated compliance officers, it's possible to inadvertently let a transaction go through your institution because there's very clever people that are trying to circumvent uh, all of those uh, rules. So it's important to understand um, both how virtual currency transactions work if you're going to be interacting with them, as well as understanding some of the opportunities and options that are out there in terms of third party services to help you identify and help you uh, prevent uh, any transactions from taking place through your systems that could somehow inadvertently expose you to um, a, a sanctions penalty. So to wrap things up, uh, I think maybe we can all just give uh, our quick takeaways or conclusions uh, based on the discussion we've had today with respect to the sanctions regime and whether or not it's going to be possible uh, for people within the cryptocurrency and virtual currency ecosystem to comply with the uh, regime the way that OFAC has articulated in its most recent guidance. So Jay, uh, uh, I will give you full position. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that issue? Sure, look, I think when it comes to centralized financial institutions, I think, uh, or centralized 
um, uh, finance, as Rebecca described it in the in the digital asset space. Um, there are tools that that companies have already developed to do this, um, and they use um, uh, many of the tools that that Jason has outlined. So I think in the centralized finance space, um, there's already a mechanism to do this. There are still some a few challenges that exist to try to um, incorporate sanctions feature, uh, traditional sanctions programs features into the blockchain. Um, things like blocking um, a transaction work slightly differently because uh, transactions on a blockchain can be recorded immediately. There's not a settlement time. And so um, there are challenges technologically. Um, uh, the transmission of information uh, that assists sanctions programs like um, the travel rule are also in the, in the, in the, um, in, uh, sort of in 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 chain are, are are getting implemented, but but I think that 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 aspect of the industry will will comply. I think that there are just open questions on the the peer to protocol things that that Rebecca mentioned, peer to peer transactions that that's that will need to be addressed over time. And I think one of the um, interesting things about blockchain that I think is is particularly interesting, and it's foreshadowed by a lot of the things that that Jason was mentioning, is because blockchain especially in the Ethereum and its and, uh, sort of context and its progeny um, is programmable through smart contracts, you can start seeing a world where um, uh, depending on the nature of the blockchains, um, sanctions requirements could become programmed into um, blockchains and could actually assist sanctions enforcement in a much, much more effective way than is done today. And so I think the, the jury's still out, the requirements I think are still um, uh, need to be developed, but I think that that's for me an interesting future um, as DeFi becomes more important in in not just the the crypto ecosystem, but more broadly. But those are my my thoughts. Thanks, Jay. Uh, and Jason, do you, you have any last last minute thoughts to close out with? Yeah, I mean the, the, those are incredible points, um, Jay. Thank you. Um, you know, I would I would just leave the audience with the thought that um, you know there are, as I hope we've demonstrated today. It, you know, incredibly serious and thoughtful people who take these issues, um, sanctions, uh, compliance, counterterrorism, financing, anti-money laundering, extremely seriously, and um, who have chosen to work in this industry, which I do not think in all corners of it um, is the Wild West, right? And 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 I think the work that, that we're doing hopefully demonstrates that today. Oh, that was so good, Jason. I'll leave with two. It's just so true, though. Um, I'll I'll leave with two points. Um, to Jay's point, um, if you're in a decentralized, so CFI actors are one thing, but if you're in a decentralized world where you have these peer to protocol or peer um, peer to contract transactions, could you follow OFAC compliance perfectly as the way they contemplate it in the traditional financial world? No, but if you read the updated OFAC compliance on digital assets, they understand and. Actually, I thought were very open-minded in the suggestions um, that they were giving for how to think about OFAC compliance today in a you know DeFi Web three world. The other piece of it that I will I will give um, uh, and what I used to say a lot when I was in private practice and how we generally try to conduct ourselves um, is that you have to think about what does it mean to be a good actor. So. There's a lot of gray area right now as we're developing these new um, technologies. And you have to say, are we doing our best to comply? Maybe it's not perfect into the T, but have we taken steps? 
to implement transaction monitoring, wallet monitoring, you know, do we have those types of relationships? So that's really important. And the last piece of this, um, and Jay probably sees this a lot in his role, but, you know, the DeFi world is still developing. It's only about two and a half or three years old. And so to Jason's point, just to wrap it all together, there are people who from a technological side of things are trying to build native compliance solutions for, to do KYC, OFAC screening and things like that so that this world can continue to develop and be compliant at the same time. Rebecca, thank you so much. And Jason, Jay, I really learned a lot today. I hope our audience did as well. Uh, had a great time and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us for Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers. We hope you enjoyed and we hope to see you again soon for the next episode.